Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. G.X. Wolfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in this show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, Truth Seekers, and Truth Crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at FunkinStuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funkin' Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I'm delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership, Nathan East, one of music's most accomplished bass players with more than 2,000 recordings spanning jazz, rock, pop, and soul. Since the late 1970s, among the dozens of notable artists he has worked with are Eric Clapton, Floorplay, Lionel Richie, Philip Bailey, George Benson, Tina Marie, Shaka Khan, Donna Summer, Barbara Streisand, the Jacksons, and Michael Jackson, Whitney Houston, Quincy Jones, George Duke, Jeffrey Osborne, the Isley Brothers, Diana Ross, the Bee Gees, and Bob Dylan. Having also performed with Stevie Wonder, Patrice Russian, Phil Collins, Toto, and Herbie Hancock, He's released three solo albums on his own as well, and this year is again touring with Eric Clapton. Nathan, thank you for joining me. How are you? Thank you for that introduction. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Outstanding. So glad to have you. And where are you coming to us from today? Actually from uh, uh, Tarzana, California here at, at my house. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah, I miss it. I'm from Los Angeles originally. I'm out in North Carolina now, but I certainly miss the weather and some of my favorite stomps, you know? Yeah, no, the weather is just unbeatable. We have another beautiful crystal clear day out here today and uh, feel very blessed with the weather. <laughs> the traffic is not so, <laughs> not such a good thing, but as you remember, but uh, uh, I'll, I'll take that for the weather any day. 
Yeah, no doubt. And you grew up in that area, is that right? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, born in Philly, then grew up uh, down in SoCal um, in the San Diego area. And then I moved here about 40 years uh, ago. So, Okay, well, that's practically a native, I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, Nathan, um, you grew up in a big family, and um, you started playing cello, then moved to bass and uh, progressed from there. Who are some of your earliest heroes musically on bass or on other instruments? And then also, how did that sort of develop as you advanced in, in your music? Yeah, well, well, early heroes include Wes Montgomery, who my dad would have, you know, those albums. And, and of course, he had, you know, eclectic taste. So there was Barbara Streisand. Then we, um, you know, you'd hear Earth, Wind and & Fire and Marvin Gaye <laughs> blasting through the neighborhood. Um, so, you know, we, we were kind of all over the place and my brothers and I, we were playing music for the folk masses and, and in various churches around the San Diego area. So I had a lot of musical heroes. I used to watch Charlie Brown and listen to the music of Vince Guaraldi and, and that kind of was getting me excited about music. But back in, when I started playing, there were just so many bands, you know, so you were listening to Cool and the Gang, Tower of Power. Um, there was Chicago, Blood, Sweat and Tears, Earth, Wind, you know, the Ohio Players, the Gap Band, so all these bands. So when you were in a band, you know, you, you had so much material to choose from, um, it, you know, and, and so we were doing a lot of local gigs playing all those, all those tunes. Sly and the Family Stone, I mean, you just, uh, you know, a, a just so much to choose from. It was great. Yeah, for sure. It was a great era. Um, yeah. And how did you develop your style and sort of what would be your signature sound? And when did you start playing a five string? Yeah, the five string. I, I remember walking into the baked potato and seeing Jimmy Johnson playing his five string. And I remember having a, it was like early 80s. And I remember trying to have a go at it. And it was just felt like a, a, a different language. You know, I had my, uh, I was like a Fender jazz player and precision so uh, then around maybe 1983, two or three, I, I started getting serious about it because of just the, instead of tuning the four string down to a low D and a lot of basses had the hip shot, um, then, then I just started having access to those low notes via the five string from about the early 80s. And I know that um, uh, we didn't mention any bass players, I don't think, but Rainey and um, I'm guessing... Uh, uh, Jameson, Jameson, of course, yeah, and of course. Uh, what, and cats maybe like uh, Jocko or Stanley or people like that too. Of course, Stanley, Jocko, Ron Carter, um, you know all all the familiar Anthony Jackson. You know, I just I studied his his playing just and and just so many, you know, even Verdine White. You know, like the guys in the band Rocco from Tower of Power, um, Larry Graham, and. Um, you know, just started trying to copy those guys <laughs> early on. But yeah, the five, the five string, probably about 1982 or three. All right. So you were pretty much getting into your groove by that point. Um, and we're pretty well versed on the four string for, for 10 or more years. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I had, I had some chops on the four string and then, then, you know, being moving to LA around, you know, starting kind of an official recording career around 1980. Um, you know, it was like, I used, uh, I played on a lot of those Barry White early records, you know, 
he didn't put the players' names on it. So, so I, we none, none of us have any proof. But the, but yeah, a lot of the guys you'd see in the studio, Ray Parker, Lee Rittenauer, playing on those great records. How did you make that Barry White connection? Barry White came to San Diego um, in the in the seventies, and he he was part of a Stax review, and and our band called Power. We ended up being like the house band for everybody, including Rufus Thomas. And, and so Barry White was one of the artists. And, and when he heard our band, he, he hired us, the entire band on the spot, you know, called us up to his office and uh, told us, you know, what he had going. Uh, and he had a tour of the States lined up, you know, Apollo Theater, Madison Square Garden, you know, uh, Kobo Arena in Detroit. Uh, we had, you know, the Kennedy Center in DC. So like, you can imagine we were just, you know, a bunch of kids, basically, you know, I think I was 16. And next thing you know, found myself on the road with him. Um, and then later was sort of reintroduced um, and, and went up and started recording with him, like toward the end of his 79 and, and early 80s. Wow, I think so. I have on my records that you joined around 71, which would be, I think, before he really hit a big. Right. Yeah, yeah, he was just starting to, uh, just starting to hit it, hit it big, and and uh, so and and again, that's when he was he was like on that that multi artist show in San Diego that we ended up backing him for, and uh, so he was looking looking for a band. So, uh, what what was he, what was he like, Nate? Um, was he you know a taskmaster or easygoing or what? Oh, no, a, a total taskmaster, you know, like really uh, he knew exactly what he wanted. And, and a lot of the guys that were playing in the band were, were pretty frightened <laughs> by just, you know, just wanted to make sure you you got it right, you know, and, and you didn't want to hear that big, loud voice <laughs> hollering at you. Uh, but and, and, you know, but at the same time, he's a really nice guy. If you if you uh, had your stuff together and you, you could play, you know, he was, he was your best friend kind of thing and what did you sense was sort of you know his greatest talent was it sort of his charisma or what was it you know he, he had charisma and he knew how to put a a hit together from from nothing you know and he he'd actually walk around and sing each one of us he'd, he'd sing the parts to us you know so um, and he he had two bass players in there at one time i remember and so you know like he'd go to one and just play i want you to play boom 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 you know and then he'd go to the next and i want you to play bam you know and so it was it was amazing he'd, and he'd sing he'd go down the line and he'd sing the guitar players their parts and and he'd go there and play piano he'd, you know probably couldn't read a note of music but he, he had a lot of music inside of him you know and that's instead of instead of getting a chart you know you'd, he'd just come over and sing your part to him <laughs> to you that seems like real old school, you know, like James Brown and all those guys. That's old how they did it. School, exactly. You had that formal training, though. So uh, did guys like that seem to appreciate that you came from sort of an academic side? Yeah, I think if you could if you could read, not only read music, but if you could interpret it and play it and play it with some feeling, um, that, that was, a, for me, I found that to be a, a positive thing. And of course, you know, he's R&B and a little bit of disco and, and the love stuff. And right. um, so that's, you know, one or two genres. But I mean, you're so much multifaceted. Um, how did you cultivate that or was it always within you? 
I think I always was was you know attracted to to anything good. You know, when I when I played cello um, when I was about eleven uh, for a few years in junior high school, I used to kind of tune it like a bass, and then I'd listen to those um, Quincy Jones records and, and imitate Ray Brown, you know, on the cello. <laughs> so because uh, it, it was a, a, a better size, I was real small, and um, so you know I was listening to those records. So that kind of got me into what people like Quincy were doing and, and anything that Ron Carter was playing on, I, I would buy and, and uh, learn that, you know, and people like Charlie Mingus. And uh, so, so yeah, I was, I was kind of all over the place. I was, I had the jazz side, but then I was listening to all the funk groups and, and, and again, our, our band played a lot of Tower Power and Earth, Wind and Fire, Cool and the Gang. And uh, so we were, you know, for, for the R&B top 40 gigs, you know, we were, we were getting a lot of calls for that too. I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong though, uh, that, you know, the, the jazz is a little like close, maybe closest to your heart. Um, w- would that be fair to say? Yeah, you know, I have to say it, it, it occupies a very special place in my heart and, and having um, played with some of the people, you know, being in the member of foreplay and, Played with Herbie Hancock and Chick Corea and George Benson, these kind of people. You know, I I grew up listening to and admiring, and um, yeah, it's good. And, and plus, it just gives me, you know, there's a lot to to digest and dig in and learn. So uh, yeah, definitely very close to my heart. And if you have the chops to play, you know, real jazz, does that pretty much make the other stuff cake, or not necessarily? You know, I, I I put it all in the same, but you know, it's just as challenging to try to really lay down a simple, simple, simple groove. You know, on a on a blues song, I was I was doing some recording um, uh, for a new some new Eric Clapton music last night, and it was it was really the, the thing was just laying it in in laying that groove down. You know, so I find it equally as challenging uh, across the board whatever kind of music I'm playing, just to really make every note count and make it good. Yeah. Makes me think uh, that, ter- that sort of concept, I always think of BB King, you know, I don't know why, but I mean, yeah, there's a guy who really made notes count. Yeah. And he, he was a guy that, that was a joy to, to play with and be around. And, and again, you know, he, he'd had that one, one note and you knew it was BB King, you know? So, um, and and I, you know, as I scroll through Instagram and, and the like, I see a lot of players that are just like completely chop busters, you know, and, and uh, I would never get in the ring with them. But, uh, you know, one of the most difficult things to do is is play a ballad and, and just play it, play slow, you know, and and that's where every note is exposed, every note count, the, the, the length of the note, the, the, um, the dynamic of it, whether it's soft, loud, whether you're near the bridge or near the neck, um, all these things just that relate to one single note are so important. And, and, you know, I see a lot of times, you know, some of the players kind of gloss over that for the, for the chop, you know, and for the, uh, for a little bit of the flash. But to me, that, that is the essence of, of what we do in, on the bass and, you know, is make that vibration from the bottom uh, really mean something. Yeah, I like to think of it as where technique meets feel, that intersection, you know, and having that ideal balance. Yeah, absolutely. And and all music to me is is like a conversation. And so, 
if I practice something in my room all night and then I came down to play with you, I don't want to just play what I practiced because then I wouldn't be interacting with what I'm hearing. And, and so I, I think it's really important that musicians listen to what's being said in the conversation and then react and, and use your instincts to, to make the music uh, around that. Absolutely. I know uh, Nathan in the late 70s, I think he started to tour with Patrice Russian and, and really took off from there. Um, but it was also right around the time you mentioned that you really started getting into heavy studio work. Uh, what really sort of opened the door to, you know, you being so active in, in that space? Well, I know, uh, I know Gene Page was one of the top arrangers in, in L.A. And, and he did A to Z. You know, he was he was Barry White's guy, but he you know, Elton John, all the, all the big records, Gene was, was the guy getting all the calls. And they said, if he liked you, then you would work. <laughs> and, and so at the beginning of 1980, I'll never forget, January 2nd, 1980, I did a Hertz Rent-A-Car jingle with him. And he'd, he'd written all these great notes. And, and uh, it, again, all the great guys were on the session. I saw Lee Rittenauer, I saw uh, Sonny Burke was on keys, James Gadsden on drums. And um, so just that one session, like, created a lot of work because each one of those guys, you know, referred me for gigs after that. And Gene started calling me for, for just about everything after that, you know. So I found myself from that day just working almost every day. And was that sort of your thought process or aspiration early on? Did you think, you know, I really want to just play or I want to be a studio guy or I want to be a solo artist or I want to have fame or what were you thinking? Yeah. I mean, I, my musical taste was sort of all over the place and, and, and having um, been a, such a fan of so many great artists. Um, my first aspiration was just, Oh, I want to, I want to play with these people, you know, uh, and uh, I had read an article where Shaka Khan, you know, uh, she introduced Anthony Jackson as her favorite bass player, you know, and I was thinking, I want to be people's favorite bass player, you know? And so that was kind of my, my dream to just meet and play with as many people as I could, you know? And, and then from there, uh, it's, it's fun. And, and people are always asking me, well, what about a solo project? And, and that was one of my aspirations that I kind of, for years and years, I thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to do one. But um, I ended up working so much and touring and, and things got so busy that I wasn't able to do one until, you know, um, it was like 2013, <laughs> you know, so it was well into the career. Um, and, and again, it was, it was fun to do that as well. In the early going, were you starstruck at all by anyone you were encountering or were you just putting your head down and doing the work? Both. I was starstruck by everybody, you know, when you walk in the studio and, 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 uh, you know, there's Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson or, or uh, you know, one, one session he called me for, uh, Sarah Vaughn was singing, you know, and so he said, oh, come in, Nate's going to do a quick bass part, you know. So there's Sarah Vaughn, Bruce Wedeen, Quincy Jones sitting on the couch watching me play, and I'm going, this is, uh, <laughs> is kind of rough, you know. But, yeah, I just got to meet so many of, of my heroes in music, and, and L.A. seemed to be, the place that everybody sort of lived or came through and was recording. So, um, yeah. And, and, and to this day, it's, 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 uh, I still get excited. You know, I look at my phone when it rings and if it, it says Ringo, you know, it's, it's like when you get a call from, 
you know, a beetle, it's still pretty exciting. <laughs> wow. So, you know, you've played with so many people, like I highlighted uh, in the, in the outset, but um, I highlighted some people and I thought maybe I'll just um, throw them out there and you could just give me a, a thought or memory or, or two about uh, them as an artist. And maybe if anything pops in your mind about working with them, does that sound cool? Yeah, absolutely. So um, early on, you did work with Rodney Franklin. Yes. Um, there was a song called Windy City that we used to play. And uh, funny enough, there was a bass solo at the end. <laughs> and so then we recorded that. And uh, it was it was fun because, uh, you know, it's like, oh, man, a solo. So now I got to now what do I do? Learn learn how to play through the changes, you know. And, and uh, Rodney was a, a great guy. Um, we we had fun in the studio and doing gigs. Uh, uh, and I'll never forget there was, he was, uh, he was a black belt <laughs> in karate. So one time we were getting off the bus and we were in Oakland in the pretty funky area in Oakland, you know, and, it, and a guy came up to him and, and just was in his face. And I don't know what the, what the conversation was about, but then the, he was saying, uh, don't, don't get any closer, please don't get any closer. And the guy just kind of get, got in his face and, and I blinked, but when I looked back, the guy was about three feet back. <laughs> from, and I think it just whatever Rodney did was like, he just displaced the guy by about three feet. And then the guy was kind of standing there and I thought, wow, whatever he knows, <laughs> I'd like to learn some of that. But um, yeah, we, we had a good time playing together. Good friend. Wow. And that was uh, 1980s. That was early in your studio life and you had some uh, big excitement, it sounds like. No, yeah, a lot of fun. Uh, the incomparable Phyllis Hyman. Oh, my goodness. I was, it's funny you should mention her because I was looking at some old pictures the other day, and um, she, she was just the best, you know, come to the studio, hang out. We, we did some Norman Connors records where she was uh, singing on, and uh, I used to go to New York. And, uh, and and call her and she goes, come on, meet, meet me down at uh, Sylvia's. We'll go have some soul food, you know. And, and she just was the greatest, you know. And, and it was such a, a heartbreak um, to lose her, you know, when, when she passed away. Uh, we lost one of the greatest voices, but one, one of the greatest people as well. And, uh, yeah, very dear memories. And, and uh, yeah, just was looking on, online the other day, they were, uh, her her picture came up, and I thought, "Oh man, she she was so gifted and 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 beautiful and and sweet." You know, it was like, "Why?" Yeah. Um, Earl Klug. Earl Klug. I mean, uh, heartstrings. I I know. Uh, I, I'll never forget. My sister knew his. Uh, she knew all the solos by heart <laughs> on that record. And it was one of those things, Earl Clue, again, he would surround himself with the best musicians, a great writer, and, and his music sort of speaks to his humanity, you know, just very, uh, very heartfelt, kind, gentle soul, you know, and, and uh, I think he, he says uh, so much on the acoustic guitar and with, with his writing and playing and, and uh, one of my favorite guys ever. Is that when you started moving in circles that included guys like Bob James or was that before then? It was a little bit before, um, although, you know, 
I know, I don't think I was on Bob's radar, but he was always on mine, you know, from his work with Idris Muhammad and, and all the CTI work that he did and, and feel like making love intro was, you know, took the world by storm. So uh, it was really great when later on, uh, later on, I was introduced to him uh, by actually by Harvey Mason and, and Lee Rittenauer. Um, and that was kind of like the beginnings of, of foreplay. It was for a Bob James record, uh, but it was that quartet. And that's when um, he looked up and said, you know, what do you guys think about a group? <laughs> you know, so. I noticed you played with Lee Rittenauer as early as 1980 also. Yes. And uh, Lee Rittenauer was actually the first person I went to Japan with. I've been there 80 times, but the first time was in um, um, 1980, 81. Um, and we played at a club called the Pit Inn, which was in Rapungi, and it was kind of designed after the baked potato here in North Hollywood. Um, so, you know, we we go way back. And, and again, before I moved to L.A., um, I used to listen to his records and think, man, who is this guy? You know, he's just an amazing musician. And uh, so it was, it was really exciting to get to go to Japan with him. I think Patrice introduced me to him. And... Um, just just again on that particular session uh david foster was there don Grusin, alex acuna all these guys that that i had just admired so much from afar and and uh so i started working those you know i've known those guys 40 years now wow so you moved from san diego to la like around 1980 or yeah it was, it was the end of 79 and um and and I, i'll never forget i got this little um, I found this, there was a house with a little kind of garage that had been converted into a room in the back. And so I remember renting that room uh, from uh, one of my friends who was actually a bass player. And, uh, and the 400 month, I was, I was now a resident of LA. And uh, I remember calling the phone company, you know, saying, can you, can you call me and ring my phone? And I was just make sure it works because it wasn't ringing <laughs> right off the bat, you know, but uh soon enough it was great it, it, it started ringing do you remember the first record that you played on that you heard on the radio yes it was a it was actually a, a local artist from san diego uh, named bruce cameron and the song was called with all my love actually i wrote the song and it, it became the title of his album and um there was a jazz station called 105.1 fm in la uh and I remember being in LA and, and they played the song and I couldn't believe it. They said, there's my song. I couldn't, it was amazing. And uh, I, uh, that was the song I used to join ASCAP with and, uh, and keep on going from there. Of course, back then it had more of an impact, but I think even today, something about just hearing yourself over the air, there's nothing quite like it for the yeah. first time. Yeah, no, it's, it's pretty exciting. And, you know, the first time is, is, is really amazing, but then even as recently as, as, uh, a few years ago when the song get lucky was out and, and uh, I was taking my kids to school and uh, that, that came on and daddy was playing bass on it, you know, and, and so that made me cool <laughs> in their eyes. And I always thought, Hey, this is, this is pretty cool. I get to get, get some credibility with the kids now. You know? Oh, definitely relive it through them for sure. Exactly. So um, Alphonse Muzan, a uh, favorite drummer of mine, you played with him extensively. Yeah. And uh, just, he's one of those guys early on too you know it's it's like uh there was so much um good music 
And in the days of like Chick Corea, George Duke, and and the fusion era, he was he was one of the the top top guys, you know. So to get to play with him was, was exciting, and an amazing player, and a really gentle temperament, right? Am I wrong on that? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah sweetheart, sweetheart yeah. of a guy. I yeah. actually haven't heard too much from him these days. Well, he's not with us anymore. That's right. You know, I I knew that it, it was a uh, it was a little little bit young. Yeah. No, it's too young. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. We've lost so many greats in the recent years. It just seems like it's endless. But um, nice. thank God that their music is still with us forever. You know, that's how yeah. I try to look at it for sure. No, that's the, uh, yeah, it's, it's always just such a heartbreak. I mean, nowadays it just seems every day you can't keep up with them, you know. And uh, I was talking to Quincy Jones and he's, he's, you know, he said, man, I lost a hundred friends, you know. And, and uh, it's just, it's just very sad when you think about the impact that these people have on your lives, you know. And, Absolutely. Even as we're going through these names and we're running across people like Phyllis Hyman and now Alphonse Muzan, I mean, yeah, yeah you start to really, uh, it starts to really register and has a profound uh, impact. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, fortunately, Rose was my neighbor, uh, <laughs> you know, he lived five minutes walking from my house. Uh, so we used to get together a lot in the neighborhood too. Like another another great gong, you know. Hmm. Well, the next one I have on here, fortunately, still with us, Michael Henderson. Oh yeah. Well, you know, Starship album. You know that that messed all of us bass players up. <laughs> you know, he he uh, he, he just was was testifying, and 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 I, re I just remember learning those songs and uh, thinking about how how great he was, you know. And uh, to me, you know, back in the day, there just was so much opportunity for for players to uh, to kind of get their name out there. And and uh, I hope I hope the window still stays open when you're when you have that kind of talent, you know, because uh, it seems that it just gets narrower and narrower the opportunity, especially for for uh, you know progressive music. Uh, and and so I just hope the the computers and the machines don't take over <laughs> for for being the background of the rhythm. No, we dealt with that enough when the eighties came in. You know, hopefully. <laughs> right. Funny enough, I remember uh, when drum machines came out. Barry White, I remember him saying, "It's over for drummers." You know, it's thank God it wasn't. But that's that's when people started, you know, thinking programming. Uh, the drums, you know, you could do it, but you, it'll never sound like a guy that can play. Uh, That's for sure. Yeah. One thing I used to like to hear, like Harvey Mason, when he programmed the drum machine, it sounded like him playing, you know? So I like to hear drummers program. If they, if anybody's going to program a machine, I think it should be a drummer. Yeah. Or cer certainly somebody, at least with that sensibility, like the way Prince would program them, you know? Right. right. Yeah. And, and uh, there's, um, there's there's another genius of all all time, musical genius. Did you ever get to meet him? Got to meet him. We never never had a chance to play together, but we were recording foreplay in Sunset Sound, and he was in the the next studio. So we, we'd see him go by from time to time and, and meet up in the parking lot, whatever. Hmm. You were on uh, Michael Henderson. I brought him up because you're credited for the Slingshot album. So um, you played some funk on that, or more of the ballad stuff, or what? Yeah, it was, um, we did that because Norm, I think 
Norman Connors was the producer on that, you know. So at the time, Norman was, uh, he had his kind of LA stable of musicians. And uh, so I, after I met Norman, he started using me and, and that was one of the uh, first things that we, we played together on. I'd, I'd have to go back and see which songs because it's been 40 years. <laughs> yeah, I understand. Um, yeah, Norman's still doing it too, so that's good to see. Yeah, so it's, that's good to see. Yeah. Uh, Bobby Womack? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, uh, the poet, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, again, the sweetest guy and, and just a, a, a gift to the world of music, you know, and, um, and just, I, I love when, when people come in with that much heart and when you come into the studio and, and sing and, and those songs, um, it's, it's just, it's magic. I, I'm always uh, honored to be in the room. I think one of the first songs we recorded was, uh, if, if you think you're lonely now, and uh, just a uh, classic. Classic music. And another guy, Billy Preston, has finally been getting, I think, some of the long overdue recognition that he should have gotten all along with that recent Beatles special. And I've heard they're working on a documentary now. So, but I see that you worked with him too. Yeah, I mean, a, a dear friend. He was, he was, um, we were on tour together with Eric Clapton on, uh, you know, some of his final years. And um, the best, 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 best guy ever. And, and whenever his hands touched the keyboard, it was just, it was correct. It was like anointed, <laughs> he would anoint the music, you know, and, and I've never seen anything like it, you know, just a guy that goes up and plays and it's so perfect. And uh, when you hear the song, Get Back, and there he is on the, the Wurlitzer piano, that's just such a big part of that, that record, you know, and, and his contribution. And that's what he contributed to everything he played on. And it was uh, really, really just like an honor to, uh, to, get, to, to get so close with him. Uh, we often talked about working on each other's projects. We never really got to do it. So it just goes to show you, whenever you have an idea or you're talking about it, get in there and do it, <laughs> you know, because, but um, yeah, he's a wonderful, wonderful musician and dear friend. In, in most of these sessions, Nathan, did you, uh, were you given music to play from or were you told what they were after and then you would kind of try to meet that or how much would they direct you in your part yeah it it's it's all of the above um some sometimes you go in there and 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 all they have is a demo a lot of times lately too and and i i usually like to write something out you know some kind of chart that i can at least follow um and so uh of course funny enough bob dylan he'd show us a song and I try to write the chart out, and then the next time we play it, it would be different, <laughs> you know. So then, but that's how he like stayed in the moment, and the music was just literally, uh, you know, being almost written on the spot sometimes. But most of the time, I'll uh, they'll play a demo, and if there's bass on there, I'll try to listen for the, all the the good bits that I that I want to keep in there, um, and write a chart. Then then a lot of times, sometimes like in the case of Gene Page, every note was written. And uh, it was just a matter of interpreting what was written. Uh, then you have everything in between. Sometimes there's just a chord chart. Um, and uh, I, I think our mission, you know, when we get called is to just do what's right for the song, whatever it is, you know. And, and so it doesn't matter um, if they're, 
you know, if they present a chart or just send you send you the song ahead of time and say, hey, learn this, you know, so um, pretty much pretty much everything. You had mentioned Quincy and Michael, and of course you worked with uh, both of them. What was it like on the Michael Jackson projects and also the Jacksons? You know, um, it, 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 was, it was like what you would think it is. You know, you'd be in there with the top musicians and there's Michael and they're singing and it just, everything's, it sounds like a Michael Jackson record. <laughs> you know, it, it's, talk about being in awe. I, I remember pulling up to, to Westlake and uh, and this this Mercedes pulls up next to me. The windows are blackened out, and and then the door opens, and he gets out. You know, he's red leather jacket, and it looks like he just stepped out of a video. You know, and uh, nicest guy ever. You know, we just we had the best times in the studios. Sit there, tell jokes at dinner time. Um, just it's funny completely different from this guy that the press kind of said. Oh, he's hanging out with monkeys and, and now he's he was one of the guys he he one of the things he liked to do is see if he could walk down to 7-eleven you know get in and out of there without getting recognized you know so of course he put the hat and glasses looked just like michael jackson but he think and uh and just a, a great guy but more importantly just an incredible artist that knew what he wanted um he'd be in the studio he knew exactly what he was going to sing um, it was just probably one of the highest uh, points of professionalism that I've ever seen you know, from, from an artist. And what about with the brothers? What was the chemistry and vibe like among them? The vibe was pretty good. They, they uh, you know, they, they were making the hits. And, you know, of course, Jermaine was a bass player, so we always had a lot to talk about. But they, uh, Jackie and Tito, they're, they're all great guys. And uh, again, they, they've been getting it done since they were kids, you know, so when you when you get called to go in there and, and play with those guys, it's just, um, you know, it's sort of the mutual admiration society and, they, and they're all great. They get on great. And uh, especially, you know, when those records were being made, it's just it was almost like a machine just cranking out hit hit after hit. And, uh, Gene Page was the ranger on on some of those. So you'd have, you know, you'd bring in the orchestra and. It's, it's just really exciting when you think at the time, you know, you, you, you just kind of have your head down going to work. But when you think about how exciting it is to be part of some of those historic records, it's just I, uh, I, I would do it all again. What's Q like in the studio? I mean, what is his gift to really pulling all that together the way he does? Yeah, Quincy is a is a chef, you know, so like. He's a great chef, and, and musically, he, he knows the, how to put people together. He knows how to combine, like, the horn section. Um, he knows whether, oh, this song needs four trombones, two tenor saxes, two altos, and two flutes. You know, I mean, he, he just has that gift of the, of the big picture vision. Um, and I've never seen anything like it. Like, he'll, you'll walk in the room, and then there'll be a room full of musicians the top guy, you know, there's David Foster over there, David Page, Jeff Caro, you know, uh, LA's finest would be in there. But when you're in the, with those guys and then he's in the room producing, everybody's game gets elevated. It's, it's, I've never seen anything like it. And, and 
again, he doesn't really have to say much. He's, he, he, he writes great charts. Um, <clears throat> every now and then he'll come in there. He, he came in one time and we were going into the second verse of um, I Just Can't Stop Loving You, Michael Jackson. And he, and he just said, hey, put this pickup, just put this pickup right before the second verse out of the first course, you know, and I thought, genius, why didn't I think of that, you know, and it just, it taught me how to go from a chorus back to a verse, you know, and I, I've been kind of using those little tricks uh, ever since. Um, little things like that, a sweetheart of a guy, uh, you know, you work with all types of producers, but he's, he's never one of these guys hollering and screaming. He was just the, the best, you know, very kind and gentle. Um, one, of the, one of the favorite things was where the, they'd have a chef on board in the studio, and then all of a sudden, you know, break for dinner, and there's this gourmet meal, and we're all just sitting around. And he he gets people, and he gets um, what makes people happy, and he creates an environment that's just very, very um, perfect for for making music. I know you've done some work. I'm not sure if you've done studio work or not, but you've performed at least uh, with Stevie Wonder and. I want to know about your impression of him, but also if you've ever been confused with Nathan Watts, you know, just because of that. I, I used to get a lot of uh, people calling me and then they thought I played with Stevie and, the, and they, were, they were trying to hire Nathan Watts. You know, once I got to a, a big session and um, he, uh, the, the, the producer says, oh man, I love what you played on, you know, I wish and all you playing with Steven. I said, oh, man, you think I'm Nathan Watts? I said, I'm going to give you the chance right now. If you want to send me home packing uh, and get Nathan Watts, you know, I, I wouldn't be mad. And he said, well, you're here now. So come on. <laughs> but uh, that, you know, that uh, happened a lot where since we have the same first name and, and he's he's one of my favorite bass players ever, uh, the sweetest guy. And uh, so I, I may have gotten lucky gotten a couple of his uh <laughs> side gigs because of him but um yeah i did uh have the honor to play on uh stevie's album one of the most recent ones um and it was again one of those experiences that was on my bucket list and i lived and dreamt of for years and to get the call was amazing um we ended up getting a take ricky lawson was on drums um and we ended up getting the take at about four in the morning. <laughs> you know, session was called for maybe eleven at night. He he showed up maybe at one, <laughs> and uh, and we started playing music till you know till four or five in the morning. Never seen anything like it. If he's working on a song, he may go to write a bridge, and then he writes five other songs. You know, so the engineers are always have some kind of uh, recording tape rolling. Um, because uh, it just the creativity I've never seen it just like come down and through a person like that so fluidly, and um, it was really something special to to be in the studio and record with him. And and yeah, we've done uh, numerous live gigs together. And he he blessed my album with a he played harmonica when I recorded Overjoyed on my first album, and uh, was, again, you know, two takes. And you don't know which one to pick. They're both so good. <laughs> yeah, and you you did a version of Higher Ground too, I think, right? Yeah, Higher Ground too. I mean, I, I think I'm always ending up doing something by Stevie. He's, he's just he's such a great, you know, musical genius. 
Yeah, Overjoyed was our wedding song. So that's how much we think of that track. Wow, amazing. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. yeah it's it's uh he he's written just just the, the amount of music and and it's all different and it's all just so good. We we're we're big Stevie Wonder fans around the house. My my daughter Sarah thinks he knows that she knows on piano, she knows Overjoyed. She's she's learned that, which is like, wow, okay, you picked Overjoyed in Sunshine of My Life. Um, and and yeah, we're we're big Stevie fans around here. And your son's quite a keyboard player, right? And Noah is uh, quite a keyboard player. He's he's been uh, he's he's guested on both my records now, my solo albums, and uh, and then we now are uh, are gonna do a father son record because we just have so much fun playing together. And uh, we sit in there. There's a Hammond organ behind me that that uh, he. Uh, he loves to play, and and so a lot of times we're we're in here till three, four in the morning, just having a great time playing. And uh, I, I love him; he's turned into one of my favorite musicians. That's awesome. So he just gravitated toward it on his own. You didn't have to kind of steer him in that direction. <laughs> no, pretty much. And uh, you know, they they had piano lessons growing up, and and uh, there's a place called Piano Play here in LA that that is great. I recommend for anybody wanting to learn piano. Um, and he came home with these beautiful arrangements. He came home with an arrangement of uh, Yesterday by the Beatles that was that had all those great changes. So we said, let's, let's put it on the album. And then he came home with a, an arrangement of Over the Rainbow that they were working on. And uh, again, I loved it so much, we, we put it on the album. So uh, they, they really, you know, they, they cover a lot of genres and bases, but they really, you know, these arrangements are, are very sophisticated. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy that I have a musician now that I can play with. And we've done some gigs uh, on the road together. So it's always fun to travel and uh, be together with, with my son. Yeah, now I know how you feel. I have an idea of how you feel anyway, because I played alto sax younger. And then my son played alto sax and I gave him my sax to play. Wow. And then my hero is Maceo Parker. And so his middle name is uh, not is Parker. So after Maceo. So yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, well, Maceo, what can you say? I mean, he's amazing. I I saw him in uh, Zurich, Switzerland a few years ago. And uh, everybody was just, uh, you know, on their knees, (laughs) bowing to the guy. Yeah, well, we talk about we were talking about the feel uh, thing. I mean, that he is to me just the master of the feel with how he plays Absolutely. Um, for funk. Yeah. Yeah. There's much more to this great truth and rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends and become a member by joining truth and rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.